Hello, you're listening to Sarah McCoy, and this is Session 4 of Greatest Stories Under Told, a new weekly podcast series. I've been a Bible teacher at Owasso First Assembly in Owasso, Oklahoma, for over 40 years, and I love the way God's Word shows itself practical to today, time after time. This fourth installment is entitled, Rizpah Guards Her Dead Son's Bodies. All scripture is taken from the New International Version. So come with me now to 2 Samuel chapter 21. It's about 992 BC, something like that. And King David has been the king of Israel for about 33 years. During the reign of David, there was a famine for three successive years. So David sought the face of the Lord. The Lord said, It is on account of Saul and his blood-stained house. It is because he put the Gibeonites to death. There are a couple of really interesting things here that we should stop and look at immediately. First of all, there were three bad harvests and not enough rain. And David wasn't sure whether it was random weather patterns or it was the result of something that Israel had done and God dealing with them in some way. So when he sought the face of the Lord, God said, yes, this wasn't by chance. It happened on purpose. And it's because of something your predecessor Saul did when he put the Gibeonites to death. Well, Saul had been dead for 33 years, and his reign before that was 40 years. So God is telling David that the weather has changed because of something that went on 40 or 50 or 60 years ago. And he's referring to some people who inhabited the land of Canaan before Israel settled there. You remember that they were in Egypt as slaves for several generations, and then they were in the wilderness under Moses for 40 years, and then Moses died and Joshua led them into the promised land, and they were supposed to conquer the peoples there. But after a victory in Jericho and a victory in Ai, the people of Gibeon who were nearby got scared and pretended that they were from a long ways away and talked Joshua and the leaders of Israel into making an alliance with them and promising not to ever destroy or hurt them. Even though this was under false pretenses, because they had used the Lord's name in this oath or this covenant, they were stuck. And so Joshua subjugated those people and they did serve the Israelites, but he didn't harm them. And that had occurred 430 years before. So for hundreds of years, the Gibeonites had lived peacefully among the Israelites until Saul became king. And for whatever reason, Saul decided to try and purge them, and he had some success in killing who knows how many. So strangely, somehow now, those chickens have come home to roost, and it's David and the people of Israel that are with him now that are paying the price. There are children and young people that are paying the price for this that were not even alive when Saul was reigning, so it's difficult. But we continue on. The king summoned the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now, the Gibeonites were not a part of Israel, but were survivors of the Amorites, the Israelites had sworn to spare them, but Saul, in his zeal for Israel and Judah, had tried to annihilate them. 
David asked the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? How shall I make atonement so that you will bless the Lord's inheritance? David realizes that really the ball is in the Gibeonites' court. And for this to be made right, the Gibeonites have to say that it's been made right. We do know from the Torah, from the Jewish law, from the fifth book of those five books, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16, that God held each person responsible for his own sins. So on Judgment Day, you won't be punished for something that someone else did. You will be accountable for God for how you lived your life. And yet here we have people suffering for something that someone else did. And that is part of the law of sowing and reaping as it works on this earth. You know that if you planted some beautiful trees and then sold your property to someone else, they would be the ones to enjoy those trees in later years. And likewise, if you sowed some weeds and crabgrass seeds in your front yard and then you left and someone else lived in your place, that they would have to deal with those weeds and crabgrass until they made the effort to root them out. It's just the law of sowing and reaping. Sometimes you have to reap the seeds that someone else has sown. So David is asking these Gibeonites, what is it going to take for us to be square? The Gibeonites answered him, We have no right to demand silver or gold from Saul or his family, nor do we have the right to put anyone in Israel to death. What do you want me to do for you? David asked. They answered the king, As for the man who destroyed us and plotted against us, so that we've been decimated and have no place anywhere in Israel, let seven of his male descendants be given to us to be killed and their bodies exposed before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the Lord's chosen one. So the king said, I will give them to you. The Gibeonites weren't necessarily following Torah. They weren't necessarily calling themselves Jews, and the Jews' law wasn't necessarily theirs. So they did not recall what it said in Deuteronomy 24, 16 about each person being responsible for his own sins. And they said, if you want to make this right for us, then you need to round up seven of Saul's descendants and let us have them so we can put them to death. And that will make it right. And David agreed to it. So we read on, the king spared Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the oath before the Lord between David and Jonathan, son of Saul. In other words, when he was rounding up these descendants of Saul, he spared a grandson of Saul's because his dad was David's best friend, Jonathan. And before Jonathan died, they promised to each other that they would always be loyal in friendship. And David said, I'll take care of your descendants. But the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Aya's daughter, Rizpah, whom she had borne to Saul, together with the five sons of Saul's daughter Merib, whom she had borne to Adriel, son of Barzillai the Mahalathite. So he does round up seven descendants of Saul. Two are sons and five are grandsons. Now the two that are sons are Armoni and another man whose name was Mephibosheth. It wasn't the son of Jonathan. 
And we have record here that this mother of these two men, Armoni and Mephibosheth, was a woman who had been Saul's concubine. She wasn't even the queen, and her name was Rizpah. And then Saul had a daughter who had five living sons, and they took those grandsons of Saul together with Rizpah's two sons to turn them over to the Gibeonites. He handed them over to the Gibeonites who killed them and exposed their bodies on a hill before the Lord. All seven of them fell together. They were all put to death during the first days of the harvest, just as the barley harvest was beginning. So this apparently happened sometime in the spring, maybe around the end of April, and the men were hung. If you can even imagine how this really played out, it's really hard to stomach. They had to have been arrested cold. So somebody from the military knocked on their door and put them under arrest and tied their hands behind their back with ropes and hauled them off. They were not tried. They were not accused of doing anything wrong. And they were turned over to the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites... I don't know if they kept them in custody overnight or what they did, but they hauled them out to this hill where they had apparently made a gallows and they hung them all together. Maybe it looked kind of like a scene from an old Western movie that you may have seen. So maybe the men were all standing on buckets or on a platform or something. And maybe their eyes were covered with a blindfold. And maybe there was a hangman right beside each one of them. And as soon as they got the word to do it all at once, they kicked that platform or bucket out from under them. And the men's bodies began to swing and their necks broke and they died. All seven of them fell together. They were put to death during the first days of the harvest. Now we finally get to the main character of our story and the amazing thing that she did. Rizpah, daughter of Aya, took sackcloth and spread it out for herself on a rock. From the beginning of the harvest till the rain poured down from heaven on the bodies, she did not let the birds touch them by day or the wild animals by night. In other words, this woman decided that because these men were not going to get a proper burial, the whole point was to dishonor Saul, so they were just going to be left to the elements and to the wild animals, that she would guard them. And so, sometime during the spring, she went out there on the day they were killed, and she camped. I don't know if she was wealthy enough, having been Saul's concubine, that maybe she had some ladies out there with her. I don't know if she had family members that checked on her. But the logistics of this would be very difficult. She must have kept a fire burning by night. And her job during the day was to swing a big stick and run at or yell at or scare off vultures or other birds of prey, and at night, if coyotes or other wild animals that would have taken those bodies came by, then she was there to scare them away. For about five months, she did this. 
that would be so awful. Your two sons have died and you're grieving terribly their death and you're already a widow. And here she is determined that she is going to stay with them. So these bodies are decaying. They look horrible. They smell bad. And flies are all around and perhaps the bodies are rotting away to the bone. I don't know how long it took, but some days it's raining out there. And she does this grisly task with a toughness of mind that's really hard to comprehend. When David was told what Aya's daughter Rizpah, Saul's concubine, had done, he went and took the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from the citizens of Jabesh-Gilead. They had stolen their bodies from the public square at Beth Shan, where the Philistines had hung them after they struck Saul down on Gilboa. All right, so Rizpah didn't have any idea what was going to happen as a result of her doing this. Her only goal was to keep her son's bodies from being taken away. And she was also guarding Saul's grandsons at the same time. But someone paid attention day after day as they saw her out there doing that grisly task. And when it was reported to David, he took compassion and he realized that Saul and his descendants really should have a proper burial. And he knew where Saul and Jonathan's beheaded bodies were. It was the Philistines that had killed them, but the people were at least able to take the bodies, if not the heads, back to Israelite territory. So he knew where their bones were. We read on, David brought the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from there, and the bones of those who had been killed and exposed were gathered up. Maybe by this time, they had literally fallen apart, and they weren't swinging from the gallows anymore. They were just lying in piles. And now Rizpah's job is to guard the bones so that animals don't scatter them. They buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the tomb of Saul's father Kish at Zelah and Benjamin and did everything the king commanded after that God answered prayer in behalf of the land. This is a difficult story, but it is so remarkable what this woman who was a nobody was able to bring about. She didn't go to the king outraged. She didn't beg and scream and cry. She never even made the request. She just went out there and took care of business for months And it moved the hand of David, and he took the bones not only of those seven descendants of Saul, but also of Saul and David's best friend Jonathan from the town where they were and put them all honorably in the tomb of Kish in Benjamin. So we can see here that Rizpah did four things. First, she saw a need, and then she made a determination And then she persevered through all the pain that was associated with it. And then she reaped a great reward. We already see what she noted, the need that she saw. 
But the second thing on our list here is her determination to do something about that horrible scene. She basically said, I can and I will, end of story. There was a motivational poster once that said, where the determination is, the way can be found. That was a quote by George Clayson. Many times, can't means won't. We think we could never do something, but sometimes we can't simply because we've not made up our mind that we're going to do it. Determination is a very important thing in the Christian life, and it's necessary for some of the very difficult things we're going to be faced with. Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17, therefore we do not lose heart. Doesn't that sound to you like making a determination? Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So Paul's saying, I have come to the conclusion that this is so important that I have to see this through no matter what. And here is a man who's calling his troubles light and momentary. This is a man who was beaten and stoned and shipwrecked and imprisoned for the cause of Christ. He suffered terribly, but because he was so determined to see it through to the end, it didn't seem like that big of a deal to him. That same man, the Apostle Paul, told the Romans in Romans 12, 11, don't be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Did you catch that? Fervent in spirit? Doesn't that sound like being determined to do? And he told his protege, Timothy, in 1 Timothy 3.13, And as for you, brothers, never tire of doing what is right. Never tire is having a determination. So Rizpah noted a need, and then she determined to do something, which was guarding those bodies. And then when it got really awful, she persevered through the pain. Now, I'm sure it was awful on day one. But it's one thing to guard the bodies for a week. It's another thing to guard them for two or three or four or five months. The continual camping out, the people coming by and looking at you in your pain, the smell of those decomposing bodies, the sheer fatigue after weeks and weeks of worrying that some animal is going to sneak in when you're so tired and you can't stay awake and take some of the bones away. But she persevered through her pain. It's like that saying, if you're going through hell, keep going. Jesus said, to the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2, 1 through 3, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. Your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered. Here we go again with that word. And have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. So Paul was praising 
the church of Ephesus because of that very thing. It got really rough and difficult and they stuck with the Lord and saw it through. In Colossians 1.11 we read, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Endurance is just another word for perseverance. Staying with something even when it's difficult. And the point is, it's worth it because you eventually reap a reward. Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Well, what was Rizpah sowing? She was sowing honor for her sons. She didn't want to see them treated like useless animals whose bodies didn't need to be buried. So day after day after day, all by herself, she sowed seeds of honor. And what she reaped was the king and his military men and the whole nation honoring the bodies of not only her two sons and the other five that fell, but the first king of Israel, Saul, and David's very best friend, Jonathan, they were all properly interred in a family tomb. She reaped a reward. Are you going through some difficult things, and would you like to stay with it so that you can reap a reward? That same passage we were just reading, Galatians 6, 7, and 8, verse 9 says, Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Kind of strange to tell somebody not to become weary, isn't it? I mean, can you help it if you get tired? Partly you can because there is an aspect to weariness that is mental, that is an attitude. And if somebody says, oh, no, don't become weary in doing good. Maybe you can say, oh, okay, well, maybe I can get motivated to keep going just a little bit more. And what was the reason again? Because you're going to reap a harvest. It's worth it. James 1.12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast, that's like perseverance, under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So maybe something will come to you that is not fair. Maybe you will have to endure something very difficult physically or spiritually or in a relationship. Maybe someone at church hurts your feelings or maybe there is a schism in your family or maybe you're sick or maybe you're grieving because you've lost loved ones. But if you will stay true and stay faithful to the Lord, you will find that he actually does honor his word and you will reap a harvest. Rizpah is our example of someone who had to do a very hard thing, but she did it very well and it paid off big. If this podcast has been a help to you, please pass it along. 